parents were more accepting of their teens, Latinx parents to be specific, of their teens being in treatment, but not for themselves. They hmm. Parents tend to think that it's the child that's the problem, not the system. They don't see the system as a contributing factor to their behaviors and their mental health. They think, hmm. you know, they just think, here you go, please fix my child. Um, so in some households where there's still stigma, there's still open to having their teens come in to see a therapist as long as they don't have to talk with a therapist. Right. <laughs> um, right. But then in some other household, you're absolutely right where the pendulum just swings in the opposite way. Um, and people, parents, households are very much against anybody speaking with a therapist. Welcome y bienvenidos to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. Welcome back to this week's episode. We are in April. There is a lot going on in the world, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month as well as Child Abuse Prevention Month. And combining those two topics is one of my passions because it's important for us to do everything we can to end child sexual abuse worldwide for good. And for me, it starts with empowering parents. It starts with talking about this openly, without the taboo, without the shame, and in a way that is going to educate our communities, our families, our kids, and truly empower them to end this, to not become um, victimized by predators by being able to detect what those signs are to look for both for parents as well as adults because it's not the responsibility of our children to prevent abuse it is the responsibility of parents and it is also the responsibility of parents to educate kids in all the ways that they can protect themselves and if they find themselves in situations that they cannot get out of that they absolutely are able to report to seek help to find persons who are going to believe them, to find persons who are going to help them to end the abuse, to protect them. And so for me, it starts with educating ourselves, right? It starts with learning about the issue, learning about the problem, how it is created, how predators think, how they try to access kids, and what we as parents and adults, caregivers, uh, persons in the world, uh, whether we have our own children or not, can help end this, uh, this, this crisis, really, which is a secondary crisis of what's going on today um, with the pandemic and, and all of that. But at the same time, it is still a crime of great proportion. It is a crime that is gravely underreported. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted to bring Adriana Alejandre to today's show 
because she has a really uh, powerful perspective that I wanted parents to hear about what happens if a child is abused, what can a parent do, what are the steps that they should be taking, what are the considerations we should all be having if a child discloses, and how we can support them so that it isn't something that they live in shame with, which they shouldn't have shame about. They did nothing wrong. I always emphasize that. And I believe that the work that Adriana is doing around mental health, and I'll introduce you to her in a second, um, but I believe that the work that she is doing is very important. It's very powerful. It is around mental health taboos and helping break those down so that, you know, as a culture, as a community, um, particularly for Latinx, that we remove these taboos and help people with trauma get the support that they need to overcome those traumas, to live their best lives. And so I'm very excited about today's episode. I think you're going to truly enjoy it and get so much out of it. Adriana Alejandre is a trauma psychotherapist and speaker from Los Angeles, California. She specializes in adults who struggle with PTSD and severe traumas at her own private practice. She has done disaster relief work for Hurricane Harvey and Las Vegas shooting survivors. And Adriana's clinical work has been featured in Univision, LA Times, The New York Times, and BuzzFeed. Adriana is also the founder of the internationally recognized Latinx Therapy Directory and Bilingual Podcast that destigmatizes mental health and provides education to combat the stigma through technology and actual mental health services. In 2019, she won Hispanicize's Best Social Good Content Award, and her podcast has been featured in iTunes Top 200, Spotify's Top 30 Latin Shows, Fierce by Me Too, and has been heard in 112 countries. Adriana's mission is to create spaces to spark dialogue and mental health struggles and strengths in the Latinx community. On her free time, she enjoys mentoring pregnant teens and loves to hang out with her nine-and-a-half-year-old son. So I'm truly thankful that uh, Adriana has brought her wisdom, knowledge, expertise to the podcast. I know you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Adriana Alejandre. Adriana, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to have you on the show to dive into the topics we're going to be talking about today because after all, it is Sexual Abuse and Assault Awareness Month and also Child Abuse Prevention Month. And I, I think that it's so important for us to create awareness, but also to highlight solutions, right? And not just talk about the problem, but talk about ways that people can step into their healing journeys and uh, what to do if, you know, something happens, even if you're a parent, something's happening to your child, um, how to move forward. Because if, if you're a survivor and your own situation was mishandled, you may not know you know, how to proceed. So um, I'm really excited to have you join us today. And we're going to dive into some of those questions and talk about uh, the work that you're doing and how you're helping people. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. I'm so honored. And I'm so in awe of the work that you yourself are doing. So I'm excited for this conversation. Let's see where it goes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. So this episode is focused on understanding sexual child sexual abuse, 
uh, but from the lens of culture, because, you know, uh, whether it's the Latinx culture, indigenous culture, black culture, or any other culture, um, I believe that each culture deals with child sexual abuse differently, and it affects how the people of that culture unconsciously perpetuate rape culture. And so one of the things that I learned from you through listening to your podcast and the work that you're doing um, is that therapy and the effectiveness of a therapist can largely depend on the cultural relevance to or with the client, right? Mm -hmm. So in your experience, has the fact that you're a Latinx therapist serving a Latinx community opened the doors for clients to see you know, that they would maybe to come see you that they normally would not have gone to see a therapist? Has that, have you seen that as an impact or an effect? Yes, I, I absolutely have. Um, I contribute my identity as one of the reasons why uh, my practice got so full when, when I started private practice, um, both as an unlicensed clinician and then when I got licensed. So um, I had a lot of first-time Latinx individuals come to me and tell me, like, this is the first time that I'm seeking counseling. When I launched the podcast, people, you know, sent me messages telling me I never thought of seeing someone from my own culture, and I'd love to give that a try. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I've never thought about therapy until I heard your podcast. So in many different settings in doing my work, I have heard that message and it has shown that it's created a movement of people, you know, longing and and hoping to see someone that can relate to them on a cultural level. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And for those who um, haven't listened to your podcast, which by the way, I'm going to, of course, link in the show notes and highly recommend that anyone listening here listens to your uh, podcast. But can you talk about why that is? Why is cultural Uh, relativeness important? There's definitely different factors. And I think, you know, speaking from both, um, because I myself identified as Latinx and have been to therapy. So I'll be speaking from a personal and professional perspective. Um, And some of the factors include that we don't have to explain to our Latinx therapist Uh, a lot of our cultural norms, because it's understood. Um, Mm -hmm. There's very similar lived experiences. Whereas when I was in therapy um, with someone outside of a minority culture, I found it to be much more difficult because they didn't understand um, all the details that go into a quinceañera or like Right. Oh, we don't have sweet 16s and, you know, um, just different cultural things. And it might seem very small to someone outside of our culture, but um, the underlying shame and problems that come with that, that, you know, our generation and culture share um, really globally is it, it goes a long way. And mm-hmm. it just it's not only does it save time, but it just it's easier to disclose to someone that can, that you feel like you can relate to. Um, yeah. So th- those are just absolutely. in a nutshell some of the um, elements of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because 
I, my own experience, I had gone to see therapists when I was younger um, in university and then a little bit later, and uh, they were all outside of the, the Latinx culture. And it wasn't until I listened to you talk about that, that it like clicked why I had always, you know, I, I went to see some really amazing people, but they, there was still something that was like, there was still a gap and I could never place like what it was until I heard you talk about that and it like clicked, you know, it just made sense as to what that was. And so when I, um, I've talked to other survivors who have said, you know, that my therapist just didn't, like, I just couldn't connect with them really. Like, yeah. and, the, and then I said, well, have you tried someone who's, you know, culturally relevant for you? And it, it like, you could see the wheels turning and, and their eyes opening, like, you know what, that might make the difference. And then in fact, they went and did that. And it, it really was that connecting link. So I think it makes so much difference. Now you specialize in trauma and anxiety among teens and adults. What led you to specialize in this, in that specific work? To be honest, it's what I know, um, what I know from a personal experience. And I do bring in a lot of my, um, personal, um, personal lived experiences and transform it so that it could benefit my clients clinically. Um, does that doesn't mean that the sessions are about me in any way. It just means that I can relate on that level as well, because just as much as how cultural relevancy is important, lived experiences with mental health issues are also very important. Um, Mm -hmm. so that it's what I knew, what, um, I could identify with. So it's what I decided to specialize in because I felt like I really did my own work to be able to help others in it. There was a time where I I couldn't see myself helping others with trauma because of my own trauma experiences. So at that time, I couldn't see that being the case. I imagined myself and I did work with uh, children on the spectrum. But as soon as I felt like I was on a different um, like healing level, then that's when my, my horizons opened and I knew trauma is my passion. This is mm. what I want to do and this is who I want. I know I could help. Uh, so I n- niched down to teens and adults um, to be able to um, share what I know and what I was trained in. Mm-hmm. And do you see um, a lot of, you know, because you're working with the Latinx community, uh, is that something that still is is new for the community to have teens come in? Because I know that, you know, growing up in the household where, and I know that this is a very common Latinx experience, is that you, you know, something happens that is, you know, a, a domestic violence or sexual abuse or something, like it's not something that people want to open up about and especially go see someone about because then that means that people are going to potentially find out about it. And that has sort of always been the, what I was raised with was like, you keep that behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. but are you finding that that is now opening up with, I guess, more, uh, you know, with sort of the information age that we're in where it's becoming more normalized and not so taboo to go see a therapist? Are you seeing more teens because of that? Uh, this question is tricky because it's a yes and no. Um, uh, since I started work, I feel like um, 
since I started private practice work, I feel like parents were more accepting of their teens, Latinx parents to be specific, of their teens being in treatment, but not for themselves. They Mm. Parents tend to think that it's the child that's the problem, not the system. They don't see the system as a contributing factor to their behaviors and their mental health. They think, mm. you know, they just think, here you go, please fix my child. Um, so in some households where there's still stigma, they're still open to having their teens come in to see a therapist, as long as they don't have to talk with a therapist. Right, <laughs> um, right. But then in some other household, you're absolutely right, where the pendulum just swings in the opposite way. Um, and people, parents, households are very much against anybody speaking with a therapist. And mostly mm -hmm. that comes from fear, because they're afraid of systems. They're afraid of, well, what's going to happen if they find out this? And they're afraid mm -hmm. to be judged ultimately, because when one person from a, from a family that stigmatizes therapy starts seeing a therapist, um, some of the feedback that I have received both from, from clients and also friends has been that um, other family members tend to think that the therapist and that person are talking, you know, bad stuff about just that person. And right. that it's just a, a venting session. And that's absolutely not what it is. So I think there's all that shame and fear of like, well, what are you all saying about me? Um, right. That, like they're conspiring. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Hmm. And, and that's interesting because, you know, my next question was like studies are showing that child sexual abuse continues to be one of the most underreported crimes in the world. And I'm wondering if that is because of the mental health stigmas, like of, of seeking, you know, support or, uh, you know, like you said, fear. Like, why do you think that that continues to be such an underreported crime when when people would think, well, you know, we want to protect children, but it continues to be so underreported? Why do you think that is? Yeah, you're definitely right on the nail with the research studies because it's unfortunate that they go underreported. And this is largely due to, um, from what I've known, you know, based off of my experience in working with, um, with children and adults who have experienced sexual abuse in their childhood, is that it comes from that stigmatized family household. And the even if, if an adult, you know, grows apart from their family, they can still carry those those messages and not report any experiences, even um, any sexual assault experiences in their adulthood, because those messages stay so engraved in someone, they're very deep rooted and harmful. They live mm -hmm. in someone as a wound for many, many years, decades even. Um, so there's that. But then I think there's also that the family unit um, like I mentioned with my last answer, they are afraid of the system. And unfortunately, um, this isn't a favorable answer, but it is true that in history, it's been known that many systems, uh, justice systems, have not been very kind um, to survivors, of, even children of mm -hmm. that have been sexually abused. So in knowing that, in a community experiencing such a betrayal from a system, it 
absolutely invalidates everybody else who's experiencing that in that community. And Mm -hmm. so they are afraid to report anything, really. They would just rather deal with it on their own. I've I've heard of different cases of where families just end up moving to a different state to get away from perpetrators, and it goes Mm -hmm. underreported. So... Um, I think it's it's fear, it's stigma, um, and it's out of ultimately a survival skill from what they consider themselves to be doing. Right, right, yeah, and those are those are very um, valid points about the system, especially the legal system, and how um, that continues to be a barrier, really for why people would want to report if they see someone else mm-hmm. having negative experiences and almost re-traumatizing experiences, why would you want to even step into that, right? That makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, what what do you recommend to parents? Um, you know, what should a parent know or do if they, you know, discover that abuse is happening to the child? Like, what are the first steps that they should take either before or after reporting to authorities if they decide to, um, you know, to support their child's mental and emotional well-being? Because I think that most people, you know, they just don't, it's not something that you want to think could happen. But if it does happen, being prepared to know what steps to take, I think is so important to making it a less of a re-traumatizing experience afterwards for the child. What do you recommend a parent should, should know and do? My recommendations are going to feel for some people, especially if they have their own history of abuse, they're going to feel counterintuitive. Um, Mm. But first thing is to, upon listening to a disclosure like that, take a big breath. And that cliche of think before you speak, give it a try. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So absolutely take care of yourself in that moment. If you have nothing to say, that's probably for the best at the moment. The best thing that someone can say is just tell me more. I'm listening. I'm here. I mm-hmm. um, I don't know right now what to do, but I'm going to figure it out with you. Or mm. I'm, I'm going to figure it out. You're safe here. So a parent's or guardian's primary goal from that conversation should be to instill protection and safety within the child. Um, Because this is a young little being, someone that does not have experience in the world besides this very awful experience of Mm -hmm. sexual abuse. And they don't know, their little brains do not know what to do. And they're trying their very best to communicate this. And for a parent to begin questioning and instilling doubt um, will not only perpetuate the cycle of sexual abuse for this perpetrator to continue that with someone else, but it's also going to build um, distrust between that. For a child to Mm -hmm. disclose this to an adult is a huge step because many Mm -hmm. children go years without disclosing this abuse. So listen first, do not lecture, do not question, Um, take care of yourself upon listening to this, and then Take this information, whether you tell your child or not. I, I think it's it is important to to be honest and to validate the child's reactions. Like if they're crying, if they're screaming, if they're saying no, no, you we can't go to the police. You tell them we're okay. You're going to be fine. 
I'm the adult here and I'm going to take care of you. This is what we have to do. And you're not in trouble. Because oftentimes perpetrators do also tell the children, as you've you've covered this in in many of your episodes, there's a lot of either grooming and also threats. So Mm -hmm. this child, their nervous system is very, very activated and not in a positive way. They're super stimulated and afraid. So Mm -hmm. having someone that they feel safe with um, tell them that they're, they're not alone, that they're supported will help to reduce some of that activation of their nervous system. And now for the adults, after they, you know, you go to um, the police, you call the Department of Child and Family Services, you do what you need to do, right, Um, to protect that child and also others. Um, But after reporting to authorities, it's important for that adult to um, take care of themselves without the child Mm -hmm. being present. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you are visibly upset and crying, I think it's definitely okay to share that you're crying because you're upset that this happened to the child. Not that the child did this, right? You're not upset right. that the child's um, disclosed this to you. You're just upset that this is happening, but you know this is going to be okay. Um, crying in front of children is, is healthy, um, it's what people say that tends to make it unhealthy sometimes. Mm. So just being very mm-hmm. mindful of the words that you're you're disclosing to them. Um, but more so if you're having big, big reactions, just never process your feelings with a child. Processing is very different than explaining your reaction. Process with mm-hmm. a friend, with an adult family member, um, because I think that for a lot of survivors, Um, adult survivors of child abuse, they also tend to um, dissociate or um, go into this freeze mode and just begin um, sharing their own experience with this. Why? Because they're triggered. Um, Right. So taking care of themselves is really important right after. This episode is brought to you by Consent Parenting, my online platform for survivor parents to learn how to keep their kids safe from abuse. Did you know that children of survivors have a five times higher chance of being abused? Because survivor parents don't know or learn the tools to prevent abuse. They tend to overprotect instead of empowering and preparing. You can change the statistics by becoming an educated parent. Enroll in my Child Predator Protection Masterclass to learn the three things you can do to protect your kids from predatory online and offline grooming so that your kids are not targeted and you can prevent abuse. This is for parents with kids ages 2 to 18. Use code PODCAST to get 50% off this class by signing up when you go to aboutconsent.com forward slash protect. Link is in the show notes. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, and and those those are amazing um, pieces of advice because I think that you know the tendency is to freak out, you know, and you yeah. may be doing that on the inside, um, but like you said, take a breath so that you are able to respond, you know, in a in a way that isn't going to um, freak your child out either, right? You want to make sure that they know that they're supported. In terms of the next steps after that, is it important for a parent to immediately seek out 
counseling, a therapist? What do you recommend in terms of that aspect? Absolutely, yes. Um, With something like this, it's um, definitely important to seek professional help, um, not just for the child, but also for their own selves so that parents Mm -hmm. can learn um, some of the grounding techniques that their children will be learning or the communication skills that the children will be learning and so that they can learn their own skills for um, this disruption and, and tragedy in the family system. Because again, it is it didn't just happen to the child, it happened to the entire family, especially mm-hmm. if it's someone that the whole family knew. So, um, and if this person has history of their own abuse, whether it's sexual or physical, financial, any abuse can be triggered. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be the same type of abuse. So having an outlet outside of the family Um, with someone that is trained to be able to um, help with this kind of trauma is very important. And it is important to seek for a trauma-informed therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's actually a really great point because you can go to uh, a therapist who's not specialized in that and that may not really help the child. Is that correct? Yeah. And you also want a therapist that specializes in the age of your child and the experience that they have had. So these are questions to that should be asked during the consultation call, which are typically mm-hmm. free. Um, because, you know, I, I'll disclose just like myself, I do not work with very little ones. So mm-hmm. if someone comes to me um, with a three-year-old, four-year-old that has that experience, I, I will have to refer them to someone because that, you know, we get advanced training in different um, populations and specialties and ages. Mm-hmm. So super important to be very right. transparent about their age and everything so that the clinician can know um, and guide the parent. Right. And you have a directory um, as well for therapists, which I think is amazing. And so, you know, looking for, uh, you know, if you're a Latinx uh person and are looking for a Latinx therapist, that's a great resource. So again, I'll also post that uh, in the show notes for anyone who's who's interested. But besides, uh, you know, one of the things that I've recently uh, learned about is that when a child discloses to an adult, that it's also important that they are involved in the process um, and not just like okay, I'm going to take care of this and, you know, don't worry about it, that it, it's more empowering to a child if they are uh, guided through the process of what is going to happen and, you know, involved. Do you think that that's also important as well? Yeah, I do think so, because it instills um, some predictability in their lives after having um, a rupture. Um, Mm -hmm. happen to them. So them knowing what's to come, them knowing that parent or guardian is going to be involved in their work um, is very soothing for them. So it's, it it is important. And and just like I was mentioning, the parents are going to learn so much as well. And this is a bonding experience, a positive bonding experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because I tend to find I mean, I know that myself growing up, um, and, and this I'm hoping is changing in our culture, but, you know, there is that sort of sense of children are seen, not heard kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. And so when 
something like this happens, the tendency is just to like take care of it and not really uh, involve the child and just kind of like railroad it, you know? Um, so I, I think that it is really important for uh, any parent, regardless of culture, to really understand that it is important for them to empower the child in that way because they're, they're already in a position of disempowerment, right? So giving them that ability to be involved, I think, like you said, is also a, a really good bonding experience, which um, makes sense. I didn't think of that as well. Yeah, it helps with attachments as well, um, whether to re rebuild it um, or to just strengthen it from where it's at. So yeah, keep them involved in any decisions, especially if it's going to disrupt other positive aspects of their lives, such as changing mm -hmm. them from schools, because maybe the perpetrator is still there, um, mm -hmm. keeping them in the loop as to what you're thinking, considering and choosing for them, and allowing them to make some choices. So if they must change from schools, then can they choose the other school, mm -hmm. the other area? Um, so, or the classrooms, um, the classroom teacher, I'm not sure, um, but yeah. giving them some leeway and choice is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who is a survivor, um, you know, because let's say that you, uh, you know, your child has, has not been abused, everything is okay, but you are a survivor and you're, you know, I have a lot of parents who work with me that are starting to educate their children on abuse prevention. And it can be triggering. You know, there is there are aspects of it where you kind of um, unintentionally confront some of your old sort of, you know, demons, as people would like, the people call them sometimes, that, that they haven't really faced because either they haven't disclosed to anyone or they haven't really stepped into any kind of healing journey. So for anyone who is a survivor that is deciding that they want to look for a therapist, but feel that it's terrifying, you know, because even if it's something that happened 20 years ago, what advice do you have for those who are starting to think about it, but are maybe scared of implications that that's going to have in their lives, either to themselves or their families? Well, that is a journey that deserves a peak. Um, so for those individuals that are struggling with that, um, you know, and, and not having support from others, um, know that there's a therapist out there that is capable and emotionally willing um, to help you. Um, it's important to know your family. So if you know very well on a conscious level that your family won't be in support, then although this feels like a betrayal, it's important to protect yourself and not share um, what you're going through so that you don't create, not that you, that person will create this, but so that you don't receive um, backlash and um, have this experience of getting re-traumatized in a different way um, happen. So it, it depends on who's around to support or not support, but knowing um, the members and how they'll react to your journey is going to be important. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of guilt that can be experienced, um, but that's something that can also be 
um, talked about in therapy and because it's common, it, it is really common for people to not have support and to also feel like I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be mm. talking to you about this. Um, but at the end of that tunnel comes a lot of strength, a lot of self-esteem and a lot of understanding as to where those messages come from. And ultimately the people in therapy are, recreating new healthier cycles and breaking away from the toxic ones right right yeah and I I know that with my own journey there were aspects where I kind of hit a wall and I realized I have to go see someone and it was it was scary because I was afraid of what was going to get opened up Mm -hmm. Um, and the beginning stages you know there was work that had to be done. And there were things that were, uh, were a little bit scary, but when I got through, when I, when I managed to go through that process and get to the other side, it was so, uh, empowering. It was so rewarding to realize that it wasn't actually as scary as I thought. And I was able to get through and I built a lot more resilience because of it. And I realized that I was stronger than I thought I was. So there's so much richness on the other side of that. Um, You know, and it's not, you know, there isn't that I got to the other end and I'm done. It's always an ongoing journey, of course, but being able to, uh, you know, get through those, those challenges initially um, can give you so much more of a boost to say, you know what, I can continue doing this and it is helping and I can see those, those differences. So yeah, I encourage people who, um, you know, and, and like you said, it really is just about finding the right person. And so that was what my next question was, is what should survivors know about the different types of therapy treatments? Because I, I think most people think that it's just this one size fits all, like you sit down and you talk and, you know, talk therapy kind of. But I mean, you specialize in, um, is it cognitive behavioral and as well as EMDR? Yeah, I I only use cognitive behavioral therapy upon request um, because okay. I tend to have this approach of from everything that I learn, I blend it and I customize my treatments per um, my clients' um, choices and their experience. So not every treatment looks the same. Um, I, I really build their own. I, I take a piece from from EMDR, I take a piece from cognitive behavioral therapy, I take a piece from the psychodynamic work. So it it looks different, but I always make sure to collaborate and build that with my clients. Um, But there are different approaches um, that and styles, you know, like my style is not going to work for every client. Um, I'm very transparent about how I work in the beginning so that they, you know, if this seems like too overwhelming for them, then um, I give them referrals, recommendations to what it is that that they may um, they may want or need. And mm-hmm. for other clients, they're they're much more okay with it. This is all what needs to be talked about during the consultation session and also or the consultation call in the first session. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's EMDR treatment. There's trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy. There's cognitive processing therapy, um, somatic experiencing which deals more so with, with the reactions that are lived in the, um, that are, that stay in the body. Um, there's, there's a bunch of them. 
Yeah. So how can someone choose? Because I think that that's, um, you know, when people start to look at all of those options, it can feel overwhelming. So what should they be looking for? At, like, how do you go about choosing who might be the right person? Through that consultation call, um, making sure that you have your list of questions, things that you definitely want to ask them. If you didn't find those answers on their website, um, then that's the time and place to to talk about those things, any doubts that you may have and concerns so that you can see if this is someone that you can trust. Do you like their responses? Do you like their tone? Um, mm. So all of that gets discovered during just a consultation call um, and also the first session because sometimes a phone call isn't enough. You know, you do have to come in to do the evaluation and um, talk a little bit more about the process. But asking asking whatever questions you may have, looking at their website, doing the consultation call. Um, even if you're using your insurance, that's still very important, um, mm -hmm. you know, or getting free services. I know that there's less flexibility with getting free services, but at least trying um, to ask some of those questions so that you can see so more so for my for my trauma survivors, it's they report to me that they feel like I'm competent enough to be able to help them, that I'm not afraid or give them um, sympathy, too much sympathy for mm -hmm. their experiences. I can contain and hold space for them. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe some people need more sympathy from a therapist everybody is different, but you won't know unless you start asking, um, creating, and then asking these questions. Right. So it's almost a, like an interview. You're, you're yeah. almost uh, like doing a job interview, right? Yeah. And, and I think that that's a, an important step, which most people think, you know, you pick somebody and that's who you're, you have to kind of test over a number of months. And if you don't get results, a lot of people tend to think it's themselves like, oh, I'm just not able to move past these things and they kind of self-blame instead of thinking well maybe it's this particular relationship and I I need to you know find somebody who can work with me differently mm -hmm. so I think that that's that's a very important um, aspect of finding a therapist that a lot of people don't realize yeah now one of the things that's changed a little bit now is also the fact that uh you know, we can't go to someone's physical office. So how is that? Is is there any difference with using um, telehealth? Is that what it's called uh, to be able to do virtual sessions? Yeah, it, it's, it can be, it's called telehealth, teletherapy, um, virtual therapy. So online counseling, all the above. And okay. it makes it, you know, as, as a therapist that primarily sees people in person, I have been doing online, um, for years on and off with, with certain clients, but primarily my practice is more so in person and I feel like there is a difference. However, um, service, some service is better than no service, right? Yes. So, yes. Um, everybody is kind of holding on to, to teletherapy right now and, and using it. And the difference that I was t mentioning in the beginning right now is, is more so about like my work with EMDR requires me to be a little bit closer in proximity with my clients 
so that they can follow my fingers because it's bilateral stimulation, left and right eye movements. Mm. Um, so now we're doing it over the screen, but we've made it work. Uh, so everything, you know, we're just adjusting. I have to create a somewhat therapy space from afar, from their home. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to remind them, please, do you have tissues? Please have water. Uh, make sure you right. have your comforting items because they're not in my office. Make sure that you use a restroom before sessions. So administratively, right. logistically, it's a little different. But then once we start getting into um, their trauma, it isn't much different. Mm-hmm. I am. We are still maintaining emotional connection even through a screen. Right. Well, that's good to know, and it's good to for for the audience listening to know that just because we are distant at a distance doesn't mean that you know we don't have the resources you know to be able to still connect with uh with the help that and support that we need so that's good to know well one of the last questions i wanted to ask you is uh that you know i always ask all of my guests to offer one piece of advice related to any of the topics that i cover on the podcast whether it's boundaries consent sexual empowerment so I'd like to ask you, which would you of those, which would you like to offer some sage piece of advice on? I'll go with boundaries. So um, boundaries is a huge umbrella term. So I'll focus on the communication aspect of it um, because I find that with a lot of survivors, learning to find their own voice is really quite the journey in itself. Um, learning to trust themselves is also something that is um, very, very scary and often put on the back burner, it seems. So for any survivor that is struggling with that, notice what kind of imposter syndrome they may be experiencing as a human out in, in the world, um, walking outside of their home. What, what imposter syndrome is um, following them? So just like Mm. a little dark cloud, gray cloud above their heads, um, what are some of those messages? Um, What are the daily messages that um, are coming in from childhood? And how how do they speak to themselves? So is it more so positive or negative? And I like to break that down through a percentage out of 100%. How much out of 100% is your positive self-talk, and then how much of that same pie is negative. And Mm. with awareness as to these messages and how we speak to ourselves, um, we can create new communication styles from within. But we can't do that unless there's awareness. So creating a boundary around how much negative self-talk, you know, because it's, I'm not... It's not realistic for someone to go cold turkey and just stop all negative talk, Mm -hmm, (laughs) right? mm -hmm. So just beginning by creating boundaries. Okay, so for one hour, I will speak negatively about myself. But outside of this hour, um, I'm going to aim for all positive or vice versa. Within this one hour, it's only positive. And I'm going to make a huge effort to push out any negative um, Mm. self-talk. And if I need to Google, how do I say this in a positive way? I'm going to do that. So (laughs) that's great. Yeah, that tends to work for some people. 
Um, imagining a soothing voice for your own self-talk is also positive, even if it's not your own voice. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so there's little boundaries like that, but that goes so deep for self-compassion and self-love. I love that. I love that. That's amazing advice because, you know, we are filled with all of these messages that we don't realize are so unconsciously ingrained. And when we start to activate the awareness um, and we put that into action, you know, as often as possible, if we can create that habit uh, almost, you know, on a daily basis, if possible, it really, you know, starts to, uh, I think chip away at the negative and, and, and you're also building that boundary muscle at the same time, you know? So I think that that's amazing. That's fantastic advice and a perfect note to wrap up on. What can I say? I just want to, um, you know, thank you so much for taking the time Adriana and spending it with us to talk about all of these topics and help people find ways to empower their children as well as themselves and seek the support that they need. So thank you so very much for being here. Oh, to you too. Thank you so much, Rosalia, for doing this and inviting me. I'm so grateful for your work. Thank you. Well, listeners, I hope that you have taken notes or at least, you know, walked away with some really powerful uh, takeaways that you can start using in your life. We would love to hear what they were tag us on Instagram, do a screenshot and let us know what you loved about today's episode, what empowered you, what empowered your children, how you're going to start utilizing this. Because for me, it's all about taking action. So don't just listen and use this information in your mind, but put it out into the world through the actions to empower yourself. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in the next episode. Don't miss the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And I would be so grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes so that others can also find this information. I will be shouting you out and thanking you on the next episode. If you found this useful, be sure to share it with others as well. Let's continue to create consent culture one conversation at a time. Stay empowered.